This is episode number 146 with Kabir Segal. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Now, this interview is with a very special guest. His name is Kabir Segal, and he's got an interesting life. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He is a banker. He is a, a music producer, musician, a jazz musician, and has achieved extraordinary results in his life. This book is about money, again, coined, the rich life of money and how it has shaped us. We talk a lot about money, what it actually means, the value of money, the history of money, and what it's used for today and really where it's heading in the future, where money is heading in the future. So I'm going to let him share a little bit more about his story right now. So let's go ahead and dive in and let me introduce you to the one and only Kabir Segal. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Okay, quick math. The less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Weeks, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. Netsuite.com slash greatness. Again, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. I've got a new guest on today. His name is Mr. Kabir Segal. How's it going, Kabir? It's going great. Great to be with you. Yeah, we've been uh, meaning to connect for a while. We're finally on the line here talking about your new book, which is called Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. But you don't know, I mean, you know a lot about money because you work in that industry, but you actually have a lot of different things you're working on. Can you talk about all the different diverse things that you've been doing? You just won a Grammy. Uh, you've written children's books. Can you talk a little bit about everything you do first? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a, I guess it's a wide portfolio, but you know, my sort of main Main role is is writing books. I'm an author. This is my fourth book. 
and then spent a lot of time researching the role of money in our lives. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm a record producer as well. And you're right, just last week I was in Los Angeles and we were, I produced an album called The Offense of the Drum uh, by Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. So Latin jazz album and it won a Grammy Award. And so I guess I'm producing more. I've just won a pie eating contest and they say that <laughs> and the reward is more pie. So I'm, uh, I'm being asked to do more albums. So let's see if that happens. And then, uh, right, I've written a few books. My fourth book, I wrote a book on jazz music, a book on the civil rights movement with my godfather, Andrew Young, and a children's book. And sort of my day-to-day -day work, I'm, I'm a banker on Wall Street. Wow. And so why, what inspired you to write about money and do this book now? You know, I started working on Wall Street just a few months before the 2008 financial crisis, and I was really alarmed with the, the devastation that it caused. I mean, I wanted to know like what's happening in the brain when we think about money, when we deal with money, when we spend money. And I got, I started digging and I found some research um, by economists. Then I went into behavioral economics. And finally, I got to neuroeconomists, people who study the brain. And I found that you know, the money activates different regions of the brain from the reward and the fear centers. In the same way someone is you know, about to receive a hit of cocaine, I was like, whoa, money, is ha money has a really profound impact on you. And, you know, just thinking about money, when I say the word money to you, your skin is, uh, the conductancy is increasing, meaning that you're getting stimulation. And you know, actually touching money can numb your senses. Wow, so, really? Yeah, yeah. So it's important to examine money in new ways. And that's why in this book, I look at so many different aspects from the biology and the neuroscience um, so that we can have a more awareness of how money really shapes our lives without, us, without it even really, we fully realizing how, how it does so. Interesting. So why did you even want to, I mean, how did you start learning about this in the first place? Why were you so curious about how money affects our skin and the way it react to things? It was really, it was really just a quest. I started reading books about the financial crises and uh, I thought, you know, the world did not need another book on the, on the financial crisis. There, there's many of them, <laughs> right? but maybe the world needs, or maybe uh, people would like to know more about uh, how money has such a profound impact on us. And so there's a, a body of literature, um, you know, thinking fast and slow, Danny Kahneman, uh, who wrote this book on behavioral economics. He's sort of like the, the pioneer who won the, he won the Nobel Prize um, many years ago for his work on behavioral economics, basically studying how, like, you know, he would identify sort of irrational behaviors uh, for how we use money. So, for instance, my dad plays a lottery every week. And I said, Dad, you know, why do you play the lottery? So, you know, I, have a, I might win it. I was like, well, you know, statistically, there's like a, almost a zero chance you're going to win it. But he's, he'll, he, th he starts thinking about the people on the news that win it. He starts thinking about that one time he matched like a few numbers and got maybe $300, $400 for it. And so Danny Kahneman calls this a cognitive bias. Okay. And so that is uh, it's called the availability heuristic. So things that you can more that are more readily available to your memory, we start to inflate the probability of them actually happening. Mm, wow. Yeah. So, and this is all around us. So, you know, if I said to you, for example, Let's go, if, uh, if you go into a library and you, and you see someone um, with elbow patches and a tweed jacket on, is he more likely to be a concert pianist or a truck driver? You might say concert pianist based on how he looks, but there's only, I think, 10,000 concert pianists um, or violinists in, in America. 
uh, whereas uh, there's many, many more truck drivers. So the brain is not equipped to do like large statistical problems. And so when I started digging into it, there was a man named Brian Knudsen who works at Stanford University, who's like the leading one of the leading neuroeconomists. These are these are basically neuroscientists that look at economic decision making, huh. and they and they scan your brain while they're making financial decisions. So sure enough, um, he can you know when they give someone a a shopping decision, they can scan your brain and they can tell you before you're fully aware of it, they can predict what you're going to choose. Interesting. So, yeah. And so that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Obviously like all decisions are made in the brain, but um, they've even taken it further and they've, they've found that there's actually specific genes. They've been able to correlate uh, genes with um, if, if you possess one set of genes, you're more likely to have to, to take off, to take riskier decisions and have lower FICO scores, um, and convert. Yeah, and conversely, if you have another set of genes, you're more risk averse, and they'll have higher credit scores. So, this is all to all to say that you know a lot of our financial decisions are being made um, at what's called a sub cortical level, like below consciousness. And I found it, found this so fascinating, and that's why I sort of delved delved into it with gusto in the research for this book. I'm wondering. This just came up for me. I'm wondering if you know or you heard about how much people the average person spends on or loses on lottery tickets over the gains they make do you know over a lifetime like what the average would be if someone does it like three times a week and i don't i don't that i don't know but i do know that um sort of loss aversion this another heuristic called loss aversion is that we value uh losses sort of twice as much as gains meaning that if I gave you a if I gave you a bet or, or like let me let's flip a coin and I was like all right, um, you would want you know if I say if you win you get twenty two dollars if you lose you lose twenty one dollars right so maybe maybe you should take that bet but most people don't take that bet because like it's it's the the payment isn't that much but if I say listen you're gonna you may lose a lot more money uh, people start to get sensitive people start to value losses very much more than than gains and that makes sense evolutionary because like we're supposed to be like avoiding losses because if you lose something you could eventually lose your life and so we're always mitigating risks but to your question about how much money we've how much money people will expend on on uh, gambling it's it's probably a lot because you know gambling is very uh addict addictive really very. so so they take this brain scan of someone there's the harvard neuroscientist who um scan someone's brain, scan a, a participant's brains, and then uh, and he showed them money, right? And so then he compared it to people who are cocaine addicts. And he found that it was virtually indistinguishable, that money money gets so much excitement um, and that the, the idea of making money is sometimes more powerful than the money itself, right? Yeah. So you would actually show them money and that the prospect of gaining would be, would be very exciting. And then they would get the money and then the activation would not be as much. I mean, if also... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Well, they've also they've also done studies. Brian Knudsen, again at Stanford University, did this very fascinating study where he he took like men, heterosexual males, and showed them pictures of dead bodies, naked women, and uh, and money. And it was money that got the most activation in the nucleus accumbens, the reward center of the brain. Huh. And so, which is really fascinating. And so, but the question is why? Why is that? And I guess. I mean, you can only you, you try to sort of answer with evolutionary logic, which is, well, maybe it's because uh, 
you know, we see money as really as a tool. We see money as a way that we, we need money in order to get anything else. We need money to be able to provide for a partner and reproduce. So money is very deeply evolutionary. And in fact, when they, sh when they, another brain scan, another brain study I've looked at is they show pictures of people destroying money and then they scan people's brains. So what part of the brain activates? It's the part of the brain that is involved in tool making. So when people say money is a tool, that's not just like some kind of empty metaphor. There's actually a neurological basis for what's going on in your brain while we think and destroy and, and, and spend money. Wow. I mean, what about before money was even around in the world? What were we feeling and thinking then? Did it, how did it, you know, there wasn't uh, we didn't have this effect or did we, or what, what was happening? Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, Lewis, the first currency in the world, people often say, Oh, money was invented. Um, you know, there was bartering before there was money. And, uh, you know, Adam Smith says this, um, Aristotle, uh, even, even that's his idea of how money was created. But, uh, most anthropologists, a lot of anthropologists have gone back and look at this question. They say, well, wait a second. There's never been a society in the history of the world that's ever existed, which is a big claim that relies exclusively on barter. And so when you go back and look at the historical record, um, you look at, I guess, ancient Mesopotamia, um, what, what were they using as currency? Well, they were using, there was, there was a very strong, strongly in, in circulation, there was debt, like loan instruments, like people were loaning uh, items to each other. It was m mostly in silver and barley. And uh, it's not until 700 BC, so ancient Mesopotamia, 4,000 BC. And then in 700 BC, you get the invention of, of, of coins in Western Lydia. Uh, and so you have, this, you have this idea that really debt is the first type of currency. And this gets back, this gets back to like, uh, you know, when, when you start thinking of debt as currency, it makes sense because if you think about sort of the, the, the early humans and they were hunting. Now, if you, got, if you were out with a tribe, sorry, if you're out with a hunt and you get some, a big uh, piece of game, some deer, right? You want to share that with everyone because one day, like you may not cast something and you want to be invited back to the tribe yes. to eat. So like reciprocity is, is really big. And so you got to think about the most important currency in the world isn't what's sitting in your wallet, isn't what's sitting in your, in your back pocket. It's sort of the reciprocity. We talk about that. It's like, oh, I owe you something. Mm. Like, I, I owe you this. I invested in my friendship. And so, you know, a gift, I mean, a gift is really, a, a gift is more than a gift. It's not just something you wrap with paper and ribbons. You're also tying the recipient to an obligation. Mm. And so in all to cultures. is what you mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're, yeah, exactly. You're, you're, Exactly. And so like in all cultures, you know, to give a gift is to create a social debt. And so I trace in the book, I trace the movement of gifts throughout different societies. And, uh, you know, like I did this crude experiment. I was, I was out with friends and you can try the same one. You'll, you'll, you'll see, you'll see how, how shocking, um, it can be. You, next time you go out for drinks with your friends at a bar, like everyone covers a, a round of drinks and then you, you say, I'm not going to cover my, my round of beers. And all of, all of a sudden, you'll go from being like the stand-up guy to like to like the guy <laughs> the who's yeah. yeah, exactly. He's, he was like freeloading, and it's like, okay, well, what 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 happened? And it's like, well, you didn't honor the the primary currency, which is like social debt. And so it's it's there's all kinds of interest. Like I, part of this book, I I travel to part of my job takes me around the world to 25 countries as part of my research, and one of the most fascinating places I went to was in Japan. And it's incredibly difficult to give a gift to someone in Japan. Really? And yeah, and it's it's just bizarre. Like I, 
I offer, I had a, you know, they, were, they have these really nice grapes. I went to a department store. I got these really nice grapes. I was going to give them to a friend. And uh, it's like $40 for grapes because they're like custom blended everything. So I, was, I gave them to some friends and they all rejected it. And, um, and the ones friends. that eventually, yeah, exactly. And yeah. The ones that eventually accepted the grapes, they hid behind a wall so they, they wouldn't be seen as receiving a gift. And what? because they don't want to be seen as taking something they can't repay. The word arigato in Japanese, you know, thank you, it translates loosely to like this burden is too difficult. No way. So, yeah, in Japan, it matters like how you tie a knot on a wedding present. So if you if you not if the knot is too loose, you may be sending a signal that you don't think the marriage will will, will last. Wow. And and so similarly, when you go to a department store in, in Japan, um, you don't. They don't let you wrap the present because if you do, if you do a poor job, it'll reflect poorly on the store's image. Oh my so, goodness. yeah, there's a lot of sensitivity. And the reason I bring this all up is because there's a lot of sensitivity there around social debt and like what is the etiquette around it. And going to Japan made me sort of so conscious of the fact that really, yeah, there's money, but then there's like uh, this idea of recipro- reciprocity, which is like the fundamental currency that we all live by. Wow, this is fascinating. So, do do people in Japan just not want to have to repay anyone ever, or they don't want to deal with the law of reciprocity, or what is that? Well, they do. I mean, it, there's, there's obviously there's there's a lot of gift giving, and, and the gift giving seasons are very lucrative uh, in terms of you know the department stores. But there's a lot more, I guess. Um, I, I guess the word is sophistication about how people go about it. So one of my friends, he was working in the '80s in Japan, and he. Um, his mother passed away, I think, while he was there. And so when he came back to his when he came back to his desk, there was all these like I think um, presents essentially. And he asked around, "What is the, the appropriate thing to do?" And so he came back and um, he realized that he had to give gifts back to the people in half the amount that they had given him a gift. It's called a half gift. So there's there's a constant cycle of gift giving, but it's very easy to slight if you're not like clued into it. Is very um, it's very slight. Uh, you, you can slight people very easily. And, um, but there's, there's always this idea of debt. Like, for instance, father in Giri, meaning father-in-law, it's like you owe a debt to your father-in-law. Wow. And there's even something, I mean, it's called own, own. And people are always saying, remember your own. Remember your burden. Remember your burden. And sometimes huh. the, the only way you can repay your own to your parents is by you having parents. Uh, excuse me, you having kids. Sometimes the own, the, the own to your country in, in, the, in the 40s, the only way you could repay your own to your country was in killing yourself in war. And so oh there's this constant cycle of like uh, feeling a burden. And a burden is very, very uh, controlling. And, and, and so that's when you get like weird, weird situations. So this, this is social debt. But when you start to overlay financial debt instruments on top of social debt, oh, like what is that? So like. People? I mean, it, it messes people up. Like, again, look at Me- ancient Mesopotamia. Um, it was illegal to sell. I mean, thankfully, it was illegal to sell your wife or your um, kids into slavery, except except when you're trying to settling it. You're trying to settle a debt. No way. So yeah, people so the question- would sell their family to let go of a burden they, fa- they had from debt. Yeah. In order to. And so that that raises wow. the question, why is credit worthiness? more important than the sanctity of your marriage or the sanctity of your, of your family. Mm. And so 
that may get back into this evolutionary idea that if you're not trustworthy, you can be thrown out of the tribe. Wow. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. Like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game, or when you're hiring for your business and you wanna find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is fascinating. <laughs> now, there's so much we could go into there, but I want to dive a little bit more into the three parts of your book because it's kind of broken up in three parts, right? The mind, body, and soul. That's right. Can you talk about a little bit about each part of that and dive in how money affects the mind, body, and soul or how uh, or the reverse of that? Yeah, I mean, so one money. Listen, money is uh, it intrudes on every aspect of our lives. So I wanted to use a biographical metaphor to sort of relate it to everyone. And so in the first section, mind, I, I wanted to look at the idea of money. Now you can say, what is money? Money. The traditional definition of money is the instrument of exchange. Okay, so it's a tool. But you can't really – if I looked at just a baseball bat, I wouldn't realize – I wouldn't understand what the purpose of the baseball bat is. But the purpose of baseball is to sort of win the game and go around the bases. So I looked at the idea of exchange. Where does exchange come from? And so I traced this. I, I found myself in the middle of the you know Pacific um, in the Galapagos Islands. I begin the book in the Galapagos Islands. And why do I do that? Because I want to get to the point – I want to figure out where does exchange come from in the first place. Mm. And it may seem like a kind of you know way out there. But I really believe that when you look in the natural world, you know, a, a bee colony, an ant colony, you go underwater, which I did, and you see that there's exchange happening all around us. It just happens to be called energy, right? And energy is the currency of the natural world. And so I, I, I go, you know, and I, I trace this, I trace the idea of money way back to the cell, and uh, I look at how the beginning of the cell was based on, you know, two basically two cells coming together and creating 
eukaryotes. And so the idea of symbiosis is all around us. And so I trace this into uh, the beginnings of man and the brain. And when, what ends up happening is we start to become aware that symbiosis is beneficial to us, that we can survive by relying on each other. So we create tools to do that. One of those tools is called money. And so that's where I start this book of the idea of energy and the awareness of, of the mind. And that's when I move into, you know, the neuroscience of money, what's happening in your brain when I say money, to the social brain of money, you know, traveling, looking at how, how, the, how people define money around, around the world. And so then the second part of the book, I move from the idea of money to like money, the thing, like what is it when you touch it? Mm. And so money is through, how can it be through your body as well. Is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so money is sort of three things. Money can be hard. It can be metal. So I trace the history of metal money and then, um, it can be paper. So when you, I mean, the, you look at the creation of paper money under Kublai Khan and the Mongols, um, in, in the 12th and 13th century. And, uh, is it, uh, is it metal? Is it paper? It's digital and now. And lastly, I end with the future. It's digital. Yeah. And obviously there's, 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 what will the future look like? It's not, I don't just end with Bitcoin, but you know, a hundred years from now, like what are the science fiction guys talking about? And that's important because, you know, the first time credit cards were ever mentioned was in 1887. Wow. It was a book. It was a science fiction book. So if we look at the science fiction no literature. Way. Yes, it was it was a it was a book about some guy. So it was called uh, "Looking Backwards," and it was a book about some guy who goes to sleep in 1887. He wakes up in 2000, and what does he see? He sees these cards that people used to pay for things. And so, when you look at the science fiction literature, how do we, how do you look at money? How what are, how, what are they using space? So I go into space currency and what we can use for money in in, in space. What? And uh, and so that's that that presents a very intriguing question because when you trade among what if, you, if you're in space and, and using money it ends it brings up the question of time how do you trade things when time is relative huh this is insane <laughs> crazy that's an interesting way to look at it wait so this book was in 1887 you said yeah it was called looking backwards oh my gosh that's insane so you think we'll be trading currency in space in the future and you're you're trying to figure out what that'll look like yeah well what money look like maybe we We'd find some new planet where there's a, a, a special type of metal and that replaces gold. Who knows? I mean, what do they use in Star Wars? They use something called latissium, mm. which is like a, a, another type of rare metal. So that's what I'm looking at across the book. And then lastly, I look at uh, the soul. Like, what is the, what, what can we, what, you know, almost every god of uh, the major religions talks about money. So I found myself in India. I was at Mother Teresa's. Home for the dying and destitute. This is where they bring in the people with lepers who come really, really to die. It's really a sad and sort of tragic place, but at least they're getting some care. And I saw this kid, um, teenager, and I was like, you know, why, why are you here? And uh, he, you know, he's from he was from France, obviously a volunteer, and he had given up his like his college career, and he was not applying to colleges. He, he said, I'm here because I want to do what the gospel teaches. And I was like, wow, like when I was his age, I was trying to like take my SATs, get into a good university. A girlfriend or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I had more difficulty with that one, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's the, 
I said, well, and so then I went back and I looked at the Gospels and I said, you know, Jesus is always talking about money, even to the point where it's uncomfortable. When, when you look at the book of Matthew, 80% of the parables are about money. And so there tends to be across all the faiths, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, there tends to be a, a different type of logic. Like there's a logic we all live by in the material world, which is more is better. We, we need more to survive. Evolutionary, we need more, more, more. But across all these faiths, it seems to be that it's the inverse of this logic. Less is more. That, you know, when you start to lay, as Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, but not on earth, that's only then that you'll attain, attain spiritual riches. And so I look at this idea of why, you know, look at money. Not only does it affect our minds and, uh, you know, our neural, uh, our neural wiring, it could also affect our souls because every God says, one of the tests for whether you get sort of permitted into the afterlife can be how you use money. Do you use it to uplift or do you use it for as a, as a tool um, to oppress others? So money is really defining us. And money, money is really t- a test to see uh, whether we're worthy to get to the next to the next level. What is I mean, this is fascinating stuff. What is with your work and research and all this? Also, you work as a banker. And you're traveling around and working with lots of wealthy people constantly. What is, in your mind, the best way to look at, manage, and facilitate money for your mind, body, and soul? <laughs> well, they say that um, there's, there's a, some research on how much money is enough. And again, Danny, Danny Kahneman looks at this and says, you know, well, some people have, a lot of people look at the, the people who are most obsessed with money are the people who have very little of it and people who have a ton of it. Um, and because you're either you try to think about how much more you can get to live or you're, you're always worried about how to, how to manage your money. And so there's some evidence that shows that after you hit about $75,000 of income, um, and this is in America that your general like well being does not go up significantly. And that means, that means like you have enough to sort of get by and to, you know, $75,000 a year is, well, more than the median in, in America. And so that means that like your health is generally looked after, you would hope. <clears throat> and so after you get to that level, then it's sort of like you can start thinking about hopefully about other things. And so thinking about this logic is, you, you, look, my, I think the lesson here is look at what Hinduism says, and it was kind of an obscure way to answer this question, but there's a, there's a this idea that in Hinduism says you should go out and make as much money as you can. There's, it's your duty to make money. It's your duty to take care of your family. But there's also, but there, but what ends up happening when you pursue the money, you start to get awakened to the fact that you need to eventually renounce it. And I think it's a great sort of pathway for us is that it's only in pursuing money that you realize that like it's not the end all and be all. You need it to sort of take care of yourself. But there will come a point in your life, whether sooner or rather than later, um, that You'll you'll need to sort of like start figuring out. Well, okay, well maybe this isn't this 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 creates like a a yearning for me to do something more, and so that's that's one principle I try to live by is like you know I'm trying to <laughs> get more resources, but I know there's going to be a time where I need to 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 do more with less. Mm, wow, what's your definition of money? Money, money. I define money as a symbol of value, and so. That's a pretty broad definition. I mean, the, we've already talked about the conventional definition of money, but money is really a symbol because it represents so many different things to us. Um, and so 
as I travel the world, I meet these, I mean, I try to meet people who are obsessed about money, but not in the way you may think. I try to meet the people who are collecting the money, the numismatists, the coin collectors. The, and, and the reason I do that is I was in Sri Lanka and I met the head of the uh, Sri Lankan Coin Society. And I asked him to bring a few coins that represent Sri Lankan culture and society. And so we, we sat there for a couple hours looking at the symbols on the symbol, the, the artistic symbols on the money. And you can learn a lot about a country, a nation, just by looking at the symbols on the money. And, you know, <clears throat> just a, if you look at a coin, for instance, uh, I was looking at one coin, if it's made, it's very thick, that means that that the coin was probably made in a period of like economic uh, greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because that, like there was plenty of metal to use and they wanted to put it, they wanted to use their money uh, and, and they wanted to be proud about their money. But if it's very thin and very difficult to read, maybe it was a period of economic turbulence. Maybe there wasn't an, enough metal. Maybe they were using metal uh, for armaments to go to war. <clears throat> if it's difficult to read, maybe there was a it was a warlord leader who didn't really care about the education of his people. Mm-hmm. So money is really a symbol that reveals so much about the society in which it was made. Wow, that's fascinating. What's the most powerful currency? The most powerful currency in the world? Yeah. I, th- I mean... Financially, the dollar, because uh, and because in most uh, central banks, the dollar is inv- involved in most worldwide transactions. So I think, I mean, most of the commodities that the, are like the like oil is denominated, energy is denominated in dollars. Um, most central banks hold dollars in their reserves. That's decreasing. So I think it's gone down to about six from seventy to sixty percent in the last ten to fifteen years. And the rise of the euro, the rise of the Chinese renminbi is there. But that's a very that's sort of a financial answer to your question. Sure. That the dollar is the most powerful currency, but the most powerful currency in the world, I still think, is social debt. It's like mm. you know, if you don't if you don't return the favor, watch out, man, watch out. <laughs> right. Yeah. What is your what is what's the biggest thing you learned about yourself and the decisions you make and your ideals about money over this process of writing this book? I think I learned. I think I learned that um, money really is um, so central to almost all of our problems. And so, I mean, Muhammad Yunus, who I'm a great admirer of his, he um, he wrote the forward to this book. And one of the reasons I was I was so keen on him uh, being a part of this project is because he's been able to look at how money helps the developing world. And, you know, my job looking at emerging markets is like, you can give charity to someone. You can, you know, we go, you travel throughout the world, you cut someone a check, great. But you're not really, it's not a really sustainable solution to their problems. And so he went out and loaned out money to um, <clears throat> villagers in Bangladesh. And they're able to pay their money back, pay the loans back in time. They can create their own businesses. And so I started to see money throughout my research and throughout my, my travels is an incredible way to lift people up out of poverty, lift people up to uh, a place that they need to be. Now, maybe that's not the most conventional wisdom um, that you get working in an investment bank. But when I started, I was in New Orleans uh, right before uh, Hurricane Katrina. And I asked my godfather, I said, you know, I want to stay here in New Orleans and I want to help the people of New Orleans rebuild, help the musicians come back. And he said, Kabir, if you want to help people Go work in an investment bank. Really? Like, yeah. And I said, why? He said, learn how to make the money 
and then give it away. But more importantly, help other people learn how to make money because, you know, helping other people learn, learn how to make money is, is incredibly sustainable. And it was it was so central to what Dr. King was talking about many, many years ago. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I that's interesting you say that because my mission is to teach 100 million people and to show them how to make a full time living doing what they love. I believe when people can make that $70,000 a year, uh, it doesn't have to be millions, but can make enough that's a full-time living doing something they love, they're going to be fulfilled, they're going to be happier, they're going to be healthier, um, they're going to have better relationships with others and with themselves. That's interesting you say that. that uh, yeah, your so that's, to, that's, to make more that's totally right. I mean, <clears throat> and you, you're, you are, uh, Lewis, walking in, in the and sharing the vision of, of Dr. King. Dr. King, he used to get into trouble. He used to say, I don't want to be a good Samaritan. And people say, what are you talking about? He's like, I want to make sure that whoever's been beat up, they weren't beat up in the first place. I want to put a police officer and a traffic light on the Jericho Road. And so, while, you know, he was unfortunately assassinated, but his his goal that he was pushing was um, helping poor people lift them out of poverty to make sure that, they're, that they have enough money to fend for themselves. And that's essentially what you're doing. What you're doing is incredible work to sort of make sure people are are, are pursuing their passions, but doing it so in a profitable manner. Yeah. So your your friend told you to to go be an investment banker, make a lot of money, and then teach other people to do that. And um, is that something you're doing? Are you teaching others to do that through this book or through other other ways? Yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> I think so. I think um, this book is one element of that. I I I, I, li- I only partly listened listened to to my godfather on that. I ended up starting an organization um, which helped. Um, people helped bring musicians back to New Orleans, and uh, we created a booking service. It was uh, basically you came to this website, and uh, you would book a jazz musician, really anywhere in one of the big cities, and then we would create a create a gig, and then we would take a, a tip and send those tips down to charities in New Orleans. So it was it was a kind of a very it was very inexpensive to run the website, but we were booking you know thousands of dollars worth of bookings every year. Uh, it was basically a, a stock brokerage for musicians. Sure. We've we've since merged the charity with another one, but it was it, it it goes to show that like you don't you know everyone's busy, everyone has you know things they're working on, but you can make a a difference even a small in a small way to help other people find some sustainable way to live. Sure, sure, very cool. What's what's next for you? Well, <laughs> this book tour is uh, is coming up fast and furiously. So I'm focused <laughs> I'm focused on this book and uh, hopefully. Hopefully, making it a success. And uh, other than that, I'm sort of I need to go on a vacation after after spending <laughs> so, spending so many years riding. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, some relaxing after this. Yeah, I hear you, man. You've been been achieving a lot of great things lately. The book, the Grammy, everything, man. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, what are you most grateful for recently besides the Grammy? <laughs> Listen, I'm grateful for um, it. It sounds when we try to say it, but winning the genetic lottery. I mean, all of us really have anyone who's sort of listening to this podcast. Um, it is not to be to be a, to feel so guilty for your fortune in life. But listen, I had two loving parents. I, I was uh, born into a, a place and once uh, was educated. Had who, who, my parents focused on education. So oftentimes, people say, you know, I'm responsible for my own success, and to to a degree, that's that's true. But I'm. Um, Warren Buffett even says, "I won the genetic lottery." A lot of what you are doing in life were determined not by you, by your genes, by your disposition, by how you're things outside of your control. So, I'm um, I try not to take myself too seriously. I try not to take my achievements too seriously because I know 
I mean, my dad came to, from India to America when he was 17 years old. And so what is my achievement in comparison to someone like that making a living on his own? So I try to compare myself not to the people who have more than me, to the people who have less than me. It makes me more at peace to myself. Mm, I like that. What's the mindset that people should have? Maybe not should have, but what's a mindset, a powerful mindset that is effective when thinking about money and making money and investing and saving money and all those things and growing your money? What's a mindset that someone could have that will set them up to win in the best way possible for mind, body, soul? It, it applies to money. It also applies just to life, which is, you know, I, I, um, I'm in the Navy Reserve, and so when I go work out, there's this uh, poster, and it says greatness. You know, greatness is about giving up something good today for something great tomorrow. Mm. And for me, that was, you know, going off Facebook for a few years and um, sort of being just researching this idea of money and what it means to writing this book. Or, for instance, winning a Grammy takes it doesn't just happen. There's a lot of hard work that goes into the album. Yeah. It's a two to three year project. So if you want to be great, if you want to make um, a good amount of money, you have to realize that greatness is accumulated over the long term. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm. And so that means I'll, and that you can trans, translate that down to making sure that you're investing in the right emerging market equity. So there's there's growth in your portfolio, making sure that you're saving for success. And it, it, it all comes back to that that cookie test, right? The kindergartners, the, the, the kindergartners who, the kids who say, okay, I'll, if I wait 20 minutes, I, I'll take, you can get two cookies instead of one. If you're one of those people and you can defer your own gratification, like most, you're, you're going to be all right. Mm, gotcha. What do you, um, can you talk a little bit about your money saving investing strategy, your own personal one? Yeah, sure. My month. Um, so I what keep you, most what of you my- do with it and where you put it. Yeah. I keep most, I, I mean, I invest most of my, I have a 401k and I put most of my money in index funds. Most of the uh, literature and the research shows that uh, it's best to put money in index funds and not actively traded uh, mutual funds because they, they eat away at, at sort of the, the returns you'll get through trading and, and fees. So index funds, I try to do emerging market index funds because emerging markets is sort of where the global growth is. So there's that. Um, I also try to, I mean, sort of in the, I guess the early part of my life, I, I would hope to, to think, but, and I try to put money in angel investments and, uh, but not crazy angel investments, people who are trying to make, who've already demonstrating profit and, and revenue. So I try to, that's where my high growth of stuff is. And I have this cash in a savings account and there's no, there's no uh, return on that right now, but if the Fed decides to raise rates, then maybe I'll move more money back into savings. Sure, gotcha. So you keep it pretty simple. Yeah, it's not complicated. And then yeah. I and I'm really good on the cost side of things. I don't spend a lot of money on just like going out and eating, but I, I'm pretty Spartan with my lifestyle. I don't yeah. have a lot of things. Spartan, I like that. Yeah. Um, nice man. Well, I want to acknowledge you before I got a couple questions left, but I want to acknowledge you for the the effort and the energy and the research. And the commitment you've had over the years to getting to where you are now, not just with this book, but everything. I mean, you are a very well-rounded, well-balanced, uh, and educated individual who has worked your ass off. I can see that you've worked really hard. You don't just become a elite-level jazz musician, a producer, winning Grammys, a New York Times bestseller, writing different genres of books. 
And so I acknowledge you for your commitment and your your hustle and your passion for creating information to make it easier for people to understand in a way that we can understand it. So thank you for that. I acknowledge you, Kabir, for for all that work, man. It's, Thanks, man. It's incredible. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Final final question, and you kind of touched it on it already, but it's what I ask everyone at the end. It's what's your definition of greatness? The greatness is what I said is about doing things for the long long run, and I think that greatness is doing the is is being extraordinary at the ordinary things, mm. and it's it's like practicing every day, you know. It's it's writing every day. It's it's like saying no to things that are going to distract you. And so, I mean, we all define greatness in different ways, but for me, it's really about doing the small things every day that you can look back and say, okay, um, how did you achieve this, this, this? Well, I was working every day at it, and it, you just see, you just you may just see a trophy, but it's not just a trophy; it's a way of life. Mm. Coined the rich life of money and how its history has shaped us. I'll have it all linked up on the show notes here. I'll tell you where to go in just a second. But Kabir, thanks so much for coming on, my man. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys again so much for joining me today. And this episode is lewishouse.com slash 146. So you get all the show notes back about this interview, the links that we talked about, the things that we mentioned. You get an information on how you can pick up um, Kabir's book over there as well. Again, lewishouse.com slash 146. You're going to get all the information over there. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and uh, let your friend know what it's all about. And if this is your first time coming on the podcast, thank you so much for being here. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please check out some of the previous episodes. We've had some incredible guests on here. Jack Canfield recently. We've had... Uh, Scooter Braun, one of the biggest names in the music business, Tony Robbins, Marie Forleo, a lot of incredible guests who've come on recently, and we've got some incredible guests coming up. So make sure to subscribe, please share it with your friend, and keep coming back, because I love uh, having you here, and I appreciate you so much. So very grateful for Kabir sharing his wisdom today. Make sure to check out his book as well, called Coined, and I'm excited. Lots of great things happening for me to introduce to you shortly. So stay tuned for the future episodes to hear what's going on. And you guys know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium bang and a Lufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range in a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out. Yada yada. 
and bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and nada yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.